Sisters, the Lord has a very good meal planned for us today. Although we live in perilous times, we live in a time of a great falling away, where it seems that practically everywhere you go, God has all but been forgotten in the minds of the people. Multitudes of people that have the ability to know God, but are instead swept up in the course of this world. But even in such a perilous time as this, God is faithful to provide for us what is necessary for our salvation. Even though it might seem like the whole world is focused on anything but the Lord, it is still the day of salvation. It is still the last hour in the harvest. He's still looking for people. He's still looking. See, even when the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing, there's a table spread for us in the presence of our enemies. Amen. Though all the world be against us, when we remember that God is for us, we realize that no one can really be against us. They will give an account to God. Until then, we faithfully put forth the words of life. We faithfully follow Christ. We follow after. Not, not that we've already attained, see, but we, we follow after. We follow Christ. We live in intentionally for God. Our conversation and our way of life, coupled with what we say, pleads with others to consider the great salvation that God has afforded all men everywhere. There was a time that God winked at sin, but now he commands every man everywhere to repent. The day is at hand, and God is good and merciful. He offers a day's worth of wages to those who were hired in the last hour of the day. And it is the last hour of the day. Today I want to talk about this aspect of Christ declared to us in Hebrews 5, 9. And being made perfect... He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Yeah, being made perfect. Being made perfect. I thought Christ has always been perfect. What does it mean he was made perfect? Didn't Jesus say, your father in heaven is perfect? Is it not stated as for God his way is perfect? And is he not rightfully the Son of God, the express image of the Father? What does it mean he was made perfect? Isn't it written that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God? If Christ was co-equal with a perfect God from the beginning, why did he have to be made perfect? What is he talking about? God is perfect. The scriptures say he is perfect in knowledge. His beauty is perfect. His law is perfect. His work is perfect. His will is perfect. His gifts to men are perfect. God is perfect. Well, then why did the Son have to be made perfect if God is perfect? It's because we aren't talking about Christ's holiness requiring perfection. We aren't talking about Christ's moral perfection. We aren't talking about God's perfection. We're... Christ never sinned. He has always been perfect in that regard. We aren't talking about Christ's capacity concerning himself and him 
the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. No, what we are talking about when we say that he was made perfect is that he was made fit to carry out the will of God regarding his ministry to us. He was made perfect in his commission and in his vocation to redeem mankind who was dead in trespasses and sins. He was made perfect not only to justify us and to cleanse us from our sin, but also to intercede for us. He was made perfect to plead for us. He was made perfect to sanctify us. He was made perfect to distribute the grace essential for us to, to make it all the way. See, he was, made, he was made perfect to teach us. He was made perfect to transform us. He was made perfect, see. He was made perfect to, in the end, present us faultless before the throne with exceeding joy, see. He was made perfect to that end. See, when the, when the worlds were made, God spoke them into existence. There was nothing made that required an extensive preparation that, that, we're, that we are told of at least. The heavens and the earth and the entire visible creation was spoken into existence and it was formed and completed in six days. And God rested on the seventh. But when we sinned, the remedy could not simply be just spoken from heaven in a matter of days. Speaking as a man, the work of salvation was not an easy work for God, but required extensive preparation. It not only required a propitiation, a transaction, an atonement, a law, a prepared people, didn't prophets, it didn't, didn't just require that. But even more, it required a true savior, yeah. a king, a priest, a mediator, an intercessor, and a captain. A Savior that would not only deliver you from sin, but keep you from sin and bring you to a holy and righteous God. That's a work, brethren. And in order for there to be such a person, it required that Christ be made perfect. Our eternal salvation could not be appropriated until Christ was made perfect. Your eternal salvation depended on someone who was capable of carrying it out flawlessly and without the possibility of failure. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was made perfect. He was made perfect through sufferings. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And skip into Hebrews 2, verse 17 through 18. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able He's able to succor 
That's to come to your aid. He's able to come to your aid. Why is he able to come to your aid? Because he's passed through it himself, see? And he knows exactly what you need to get from here to there. He's able to succor them that, that are tempted. Are you tempted? Jesus was tempted. He knows what that's like. He had to be made like us in every way, fitting for his ministry. Not only to forgive our sin and to reconcile us to God, but to keep us from sin, bring us to God, present us faultless before him. And he was made perfectly fit to do that very thing. Amen. His current work, the, the work that he's currently doing, Jesus is working at the right hand of the Father right now. He's working. He's a working Jesus. He said, I work and my Father works. He's not, he's not sitting at the right hand of God in a state of inactivity, brethren. He's, he's working. And what is he doing? He's bringing many sons to glory. And see, he, he had to be fit for that work. So having been made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. Yeah, this word author in the Greek is aetios. It's only used once in the scriptures. And that is in this verse, its emphasis slightly differs from the author and finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12 too, which that author was archegon. It's the Greek word archegon, meaning founder or originator. While this author refers to the cause of, the one who, who is held responsible for. There's another variation that's used of that in the scripture, which is iteof, which is used by Pontius Pilate when he said of Christ, I find no fault in him, or rather, I find no real cause in him. It's also used by the town clerk in Ephesus when he quieted the crowd. The crowd, see, was, was stirred up, if you remember, by Demetrius, the silversmith, who, provoked, who was provoked by the teaching of Paul and the disciples, and he stirred up the crowds. He stirred up the crowd. And the town clerk reasoned with the people that Paul and his disciples hadn't personally done anything to their gods or to them, and their, if their rioting was called into question, there would be no real reason. There wouldn't be any reason why they were doing what they were doing. There would be no, no cause, no justifiable cause for it. So that's, you have these three different versions. And I, I like how the King James uses author here. Author of eternal salvation. Not, and not just the cause of eternal salvation. I myself am usually very careful about bringing up the Greek. As is in the... The day we live in, I've noticed that it seems to start more arguments over word meetings than, than lead to godly edifying. However, I want to point out the faithfulness of the King James writers and how they were moved to very carefully select this word, author. I believe it to be an excellent word with a very large capacity. It contains the reality of all of those three Greek words. Aiteos, Aiteov, and archegon, all in one word. The thing that is to be seen is that Christ is the author of, the originator of, the source of, the true cause of, the actual reason for, and the one given authority and responsibility for the salvation of mankind. He's the author and finisher of our faith, and he's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, it's a heavy, this is a heavy spiritual word, his authorship. 
And if it required that Christ be prepared and perfected for the work of God, don't let anyone convince you that you are above the master and that you do not require a similar kind of perfection yourself. Jesus set the example now of a person who lived to do the will of God on earth to be made ready for a purpose in heaven. See, he lived that out. Salvation is an eternal salvation. We aren't just talking about a salvation that never ends when we say eternal salvation. It's a salvation that brings you close to an eternal God. And if God is perfect, as Christ has stated, and you're going to be brought to a perfect God, then you have to be perfected too. Consider all that the scripture has said about it. Even from the beginning, you can go all the way back to Genesis. God told Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect. Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father which in heaven is perfect. The psalmist David said, God is my strength and power and he maketh my way perfect. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, salvation's calculated to this end, brethren. It's not just a beginning. Salvation is like a course. The gifts are given to the church, it says, for the perfecting of the saints. When we gather together, it will be unto a perfect man. The apostles taught and warned to this end, he said, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote these things to believers who were already in the kingdom. They were already converted. He said said that he desired of those in the church that he might perfect that which is lacking in their faith. He wrote that to believers that were already in. He said, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. See, there's a, just coming in isn't the point. It's the, it's the end that's the point. It's the end of your, your faith that's the point. You have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, we, we, the person that has that hope in themselves, see, they will, you'll purify yourself even as he is pure. Which it tells you that there's more work to be done after conversion. And of course, Christ this very minute is ministering things to you that are able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne with exceeding joy. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's an eternal salvation that's bringing us to an eternal God. The world to come is an eternal world. The life we have been given is eternal life. See, it's ever increasing. It's it's superior. Mark my words, brothers and sisters, there's a salvation that is widely presented today that is not an eternal salvation. It's a salvation that saves people from temporary things. It's a salvation that saves people from alcoholism and from bad marital issues and saved from loneliness and saved from financial difficulty and saved from hardship. 
All these things, all these issues that only occur in life in this world only. That's, a, that's not an eternal salvation. That's a temporal salvation. It doesn't say he's the author of temporal salvation. He's the author of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation is a salvation that is bringing men into, not just out of, into a fellowship with God. And eternal salvation is a salvation that's making men like God. And eternal salvation causes a person not to take root in a temporal world that is passing away, but to confess that we're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's the effect of an eternal salvation. And eternal salvation is a purpose-filled salvation. And that purpose is not for this world only. People who say that God has saved us primarily so we can feed the poor and the homeless. I'm talking about an emphasis here. People who say that God has saved us so that we can be active in the community must keep this in mind. There will be no poor in heaven. There will be no homeless in heaven. Now, we aren't against acts of kindness and generosity, God forbid. There are many times as God's children, we're naturally provoked to these things. But the main thing is eternity, brethren. It's the world to come. We were, we were, we were, we were, God is saving us for the world to come. You're made to inherit the world to come. It's not, gonna re- it's not really going to matter. And see, in the grand scheme of things, you've got to reason these things out. Is it really going to matter if your neighbor's lawn is mowed today if tomorrow it's going to burn up? It's an eternal salvation. It's fitting us for a work and a purpose in the world to come. Assuming I'm speaking to born-again believers here, your salvation had a beginning. There was a point in time that you heard the Lord. You obeyed from the heart. There was, a, there was a point in time that you were baptized and you entered the kingdom and God put you in the Christ and he placed you in a body and he seated you in heavenly places and he, and he quickened you together with Christ and he made you a new creation and he took the stony heart out of your flesh and he, and he put in a, a tender and responsive heart and, and he circumcised your heart. And he separated you. See, these are things that did happen instantaneously. You became accepted in the beloved. Your conscience was cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. These are very real realities that happened at one point. When you came at conversion, they all happened. We had a good beginning. But it's not the end of the matter. These things mark the beginning of your salvation, not the end. Just consider the thing, some of the things that people do. No one plants a crop for the sake of growing a crop. They plant the crop for the harvest in mind. That's why they did that. No one goes to school primarily to attend classes or to live on campus. That's, that's not the reason why you're there. We go to school and we attend classes in view of the work that we desire to perform that requires that kind of tutelage. Yeah. It's in view of, it's in view of a, a greater purpose than just going to the college. No one starts building a building at the foundation, which every foundation is built with the building in mind. Yeah. 
No foundation is built with the foundation in mind. The foundation's built with the building in mind, see? Nobody builds a foundation and then abandons the work. Who does that? God doesn't do it either. No one goes on a diet for the sake of eating unpleasant things, but they go on a diet for the intention that it will produce a desired outcome, see? No one purchases a car for the sake of having a car. They purchase a car so that they can get where they're going. There's a, there's a purpose behind it. No one buys a power tool or a kitchen appliance or anything. We don't, who does anything without a purpose? There's an intention behind everything we do. There's a purpose behind everything we do. We're made in the image of God. God, there's a purpose behind everything he does. If he's saving men, he's not just saving men to save men. There's a purpose for it. He's a purposeful God. His salvation has a purpose. And, and that purpose requires more than just a one-time obedience. You weren't saved just so that you could get in. You were saved for a for a purpose. We're talking about Jesus, the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's what we're talking about. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. He's working these things together for our good and we're called according to his purpose. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We follow Christ, and as you follow him, as you follow him, he is authoring your eternal salvation. He that began a good work in you, see, will, will bring it to completion, but not without our, our participation and willingness. Like how the scripture says, to them who obey. It's like a, it's like a confirmation of the state of, of, of continuing in the faith, see? See, a person who, can, who continues to believe God will obey God. A person, that, a person who is continuing steadfast in the faith, they will also continue to obey God. It's at this point where a lot of people today seem to have trouble that they say that this is preaching a works-based salvation, but this is not so. Your salvation was not initiated by anything that you did. We were in every sense of the word in bondage to sin. Every sense of the word. We, like Israel and Egypt, had to be delivered from our bondage. And we could not free ourselves. Those who teach salvation by works teach that we can free ourselves. That's, that's what preaching salvation by works is that we somehow freed ourselves from the bondage of sin. But this is not so. We did not do anything to earn our freedom. That we were something and Christ died for us because of who we are or what we did is not right. It's not right to think that way. When Christ died for us, we were the enemies of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were by nature the children of wrath as others. We were not only unlike God, we were absolutely unlovely and unlovable. But God provided something for all men. Not just for us, for all men everywhere. He, see, he provided something. Even when we were far from him. He provided a way out and he provided a way in. And now 
we have to avail ourselves of that. We have to reach out and take hold of what God has provided. It says, 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are laborers together with God. We're laborers together. That means that your work's involved. There's an involvement in it. Salvation required God to initiate it, but it requires you to respond to it. It's like if somebody told you that a nuclear bomb was going to hit the city and there was no way for you to escape on foot. Then someone came and gave you a car capable of getting out of that city. You didn't buy the car. You didn't do anything to earn the car, but somebody gave it to you. It was a gift to get out. But then imagine that person sat on their front porch, staring at the car and telling others, the Lord gave me this new car, I'm saved. But they haven't availed themselves of it. Brethren, there's people today doing that exact same thing. It's like if someone was locked up in an enemy concentration camp, in a jail cell that was locked. No matter how hard you tried, you couldn't get out of that jail cell. And even if you could get out of that jail cell, you're in an enemy territory. There's guards around every corner. Even if you could escape, even if we could have escaped, even if we could have freed ourselves, who was going to protect us from the enemy here? Then a rescuer came along and unlocked that jail cell. The cell was not unlocked by your works. It was unlocked by your rescuer's works. He's the one who infiltrated. He's the one who unlocked the cell. He's the one that told you to come out and follow him. How essential is following him to get out? See, he fought his way in. Your rescuer fought his way in. He, know, he went the way in. He knows the way out. Now imagine the prisoner doesn't leave his cell, but he sits there and tells others that he is saved because his cell door is unlocked and he just sits in his cell. And then he chides other people who follow, who obey and follow. You're preaching a works-based salvation. You see, this is a foolish, this is a scriptural example. Noah was told that a flood was coming to destroy the entire world. Then he gave Noah a pattern and told him to build an ark. And he told him that if he, would, if he obeyed, he'd save him and his house. Noah did not make the trees, God did. Noah didn't make the pitch. God did. Noah didn't come up with the pattern of the ark. God gave it to him. Noah didn't know himself that a flood was coming. God told him. Without God, Noah wouldn't have been saved. But God gave him what he required, see. And he had to put his hand to the work. And God's given every one of us what we've required. And we have to put our hand to the work. God's not, when it says crucify the flesh with its affection and lust, God's not going to do that for you. You've got to put your hand to it. You've got to save yourselves from this untoward generation. But it's not just about deliverance out of condemnation. See, these, these similitudes can't bear the weight of our situation. God didn't just make a way out. He made a way in. Think that if someone gave you a gift and you opened it and you looked at it and you said thanks, but you never used it for the giver's intended purpose, what good would it 
what good of a gift is it? If you just sat it on the shelf and never, not, not only would it be no good, of no good to you, but it would be like telling the person who got you that gift, that gift was really no good to me at all. Do we really think that God's gift of salvation is of no use, of no, no profit? Those who say they've received the gift of salvation, but they never use what they've been given to profit God are actually declaring the gift of God to be useless, to, not just to themselves, but to everybody else around them. The blind man who received his sight had to traverse an entire city and wash in the pool of Siloam before he received it. God gives you the ability and you, by faith, have to take hold of it. Think of a person who had his tuition paid in advance to enter college. And on the first day, he went to the commons area and he told others, my degree is paid for and at the end of four years, I'm going to get my degree. I don't need to go through any classes because my education's paid for. That's exactly what people are doing in today in the church. They've declared, my education's paid for. I don't need to be taught of the Lord. I don't need to go, any, go to any classes. I don't need to advance in the kingdom. I don't need to advance in understanding. I know the scripture says, don't be as children that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I know that the scripture says, in understanding, be men, but I don't have to go into any classes. See, that's ridiculous. Think of an employer who hires a person to do a job, and they tell the employee that they were not hired on because of anything they did, then imagine that employee decides not to do any work for his employer and tells everyone at the end of the week, I'm going to get a paycheck. The same thing has happened in the day that we live in. There are people who claim that they belong to the Lord and that they are saved, but they don't work for the Lord. They don't live for God. They aren't profitable to God. When God speaks, they don't pay attention. When God says something, they don't listen. They're like the man who was given the talent and buried it in the sand. When his master came back, he called him a wicked and lazy servant and commanded that the unprofitable servant be cast in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brethren, the salvation of God is calculated to make you profitable for God. It's calculated to make you increase. It's calculated to make you more like him. And those who obey Christ, he is authoring this salvation. It's not referred to as a one-time event. It's referred to as the race that is set before us. That's how salvation is presented. Run the race that is set before you. Paul referred to it as a course. Paul said, I finished my course. Yeah. See, that, that's how he referred to salvation, as a course. Paul said, I finished my course. It's something to be worked out. God, God's worked it in you. Yeah. Now you work it out with yeah. fear and trembling. Amen. Praise God for Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the author of eternal salvation. God made the worlds. It was a work by simply speaking. But making men like him is a work he's still completing. Mm -hmm. It required that he send his son in our likeness and location. And as he suffered here, he was made perfect for his vocation. Authoring eternal salvation for all who will obey him. He's working things together as we walk this narrow way then. 
So we can see to set us free was only the beginning. It wasn't so that we would not take heed and keep on sinning. He saved us for a purpose and in truth the world to come. It wasn't to be worthless or of no use to the Son. Our salvation has begun and it's by nothing we have done. Now we all can run to obtain the prize that's to be won. God's great salvation does not just make a way out to escape your filthy sin and death and hell and doubt, but he's also made a rest, a blessed way inside, and is now perfecting for himself his spotless holy bride. So may you use your given times of calm and blessed peace to advance and live for him, to profit God and to increase, that you will be fit for that land for your heavenly calling to the one who will present you there and will keep you all from falling. Amen.